0: There was no evidence that Governor, that that, uh, Mr. Noriega was involved in drugs, no hard evidence, until we indicted him. Does the NSA collect any type of data at all
1: on millions or hundreds of
0: millions of Americans? No, sir. It does not. Not wittingly.
1: Have we ever tried to meddle in other countries' elections?
0: Oh, probably, but uh, it was for the good of the system. Oh, so we don't mess around other people's elections, too. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Rackets Podcast. I'm your host Brian Sadie. On this podcast, we typically uh, discuss topics such as organized crime, mafia families, corruption, politics, and I've got a really interesting guest on the show today. People often refer to war as a racket, and there's many good reasons for that. The guest today is Michael Ames. He's an investigative reporter and book author based in Brooklyn, New York. Um, after a decade working in media in southern Idaho, Ames moved east and shifted to national issues, writing mostly for the Daily Beast, Harper's, and Newsweek magazines. And his first book, American Cipher, which he co-authored with. Former U.S. Army infantryman, Matt Farwell, was published by Penguin Press in March. And that's what I got him on the show to discuss. Um, it's actually American cipher, Bo Bergdahl and the U.S. tragedy in Afghanistan. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me on. Uh, thanks so much. Um, the first thing I kind of wanted to comment upon, I and the title, like I said, should have forewarned me, because I thought it was going to be mostly a Bo Bergdahl book, but I, I think you did. You had a really interesting commentary as far as just, like I said, the tragedy or just the failed mission in many ways, war in Afghanistan. I mean, we're coming up on almost 18 years of war in this country. Um, I think it's just really, really pressing because, and I haven't checked the latest news, but we've been trying to negotiate this truce for a while. And um, early on, you kind of talk about how there was this early offer of peace. And I was just kind of hoping that you could kind of you know expand upon that, because I, I don't think that the average American knows a whole lot about that.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I didn't know about it myself until I started researching this and reading, doing my own reading on the war. I wasn't a military reporter before. And uh, what I discovered through authors who had done this work before I came to the game was that, some of the earliest uh days of the war when the taliban knew they didn't stand a chance against the united states military they they surrendered and several of them look these guys were opportunists and several of them tried to join the new government you know there were there were guys there there were afghans who had seen governments rise and fall. War. The war had been going, there had been, the country had been basically in a state of war since the end of the 70s. And uh, they saw which way the winds were blowing. And they said, well, let's try to work with this new government, with the Americans. Our intelligence operatives started working with them. And then these guys got rolled up and sent to Guantanamo Bay, even after in some cases, they were promised amnesty and given assurances that they'd be able to join the government. So it does not present a uh, sterling track record of honesty for the U.S. government at the beginning of this war. And it just makes you wonder how it could have gone differently had we lived up to some of our more noble you know, values and aspirations, I think.
0: Yeah, exactly, 18 years in Afghanistan, we basically got endless war. Um, I mean, just perpetual war, and it's not just Afghanistan. I think, one of, I mean, as a reader, this was my interpretation. But I think that basically one of the things you were trying to point out that was that basically Bo Bergdahl was kind of like a symptom, as, as far as um, just the endless wars. And and one of the points that you made was the the lower standards for enrollment. And I was kind of hoping that you could kind of you know just give a little information, you know, for the listeners as far as that.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's like a key that I felt like you know the better I understood his story, the better I understood the entire war. That's why we call the book "American Cipher" because a cipher is, you know, like a, is a code through which you can um, decipher greater meanings. Um, and just a little other background for you and your listeners is uh i had a personal connection to this me and matt farwell both did matt farwell like you said fought in the infantry and he fought in eastern afghanistan in the same province where bergdahl fought two years earlier um he was with the 10th mountain division Bergdahl was with with the uh the um 125th but uh I have a connection to it because I live in Bergdahl's hometown in Idaho. Bergdahl's father was my UPS driver. People, we had a lot of mutual friends. This was not just an abstraction to, for, on the news for me. This was, I was in a community where where my friends were his friends and, and, and people would attend vigils. And while I didn't know him personally, I got to see it through that different lens, which I think was very valuable to me, a way to bring the war home. Um, but. Uh, I digress. <laughs> Your question was about the lowered standards. So, in in 2007, the U.S. Army started lowering standards because Iraq was on fire, the war was raging, and we needed to. We needed more bodies. They're, they're, these wars were out of control. We're fighting war on two fronts now in the Middle East, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and we needed more people. And the army started lowering standards. And uh, you know, in in the book. We go into details about the way those standards are lowered, uh, and give some good statistics and background information on that. Typically, lowered standards means you end up with some soldiers with maybe a rap sheet or a felony conviction, and the army gives them another chance. You know, there's an old saying in the military: "You can go to jail or you can join the army." And a lot, of, a lot of people took that route for that reason. But for, but you also end up. Opening up the possibility of people like Bo Bergdahl, who looked like a soldier, um, did everything on paper correctly, knew all of the knew all of his weapons, knew all of the orders, knew the Army field book, but had an emotional psychological issue that had led him to wash out of the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard did its job. The Coast Guard said if this guy wants to join the military again, he needs proper psychological counseling and and clearance. And the Army simply waived that, said no, he's good, we'll take him. And that's how you end up with with Bo Bergdahl on the front lines in Afghanistan.
0: Yeah, I think that it's not just it's not just the the fact that these guys have to go back for one or two tour or deployments, I should say, but you've got. This trend of less and less people enlisting in the army, as well, part because we've got these endless wars, and I would say a pretty, a pretty bad foreign policy. But actually, one of the things, that, and I wanted to bring up, we, we should probably back it up a touch. Um, again, we're talking about Bo Bergdahl. I imagine most people listening are, are quite familiar with his story, but if, if you don't mind, let's, let's just kind of give it like a real quick, like Wikipedia intro to Bo Bergdahl, if you don't mind.
1: Sure, yeah. Bo Bergdahl was captured by the Taliban after he willingly walked off his post in eastern Afghanistan unarmed in the middle of the night for reasons that no one understood and no one could begin to fathom because it was a crazy thing to do. He was then held prisoner for five years in Pakistan. That's an important point because and we at home were told that he was held in Afghanistan, and soldiers were told that he was in Afghanistan. But in fact, he had been—he was smuggled over the border into Pakistan within two to three days, and that's where he was held for five years. Uh, ultimately, being the longest-held American military personnel in a foreign combat zone since Vietnam, uh, so the longest-held POW in you know two generations. The longest-held POW of these post-9/11 wars, and he was ultimately, and um, to slow it down a notch, he the Taliban was ready to start negotiating for him two days after he was captured. They wanted uh, guys, their guys, released from prison. They wanted certain uh, accommodations, and we, the American government, had no way to even have negotiations. So it wasn't even that we didn't like their terms we didn't even have a diplomatic structure in place. So American governmental dysfunction drags this out and drags this out and he's there for five years and ultimately was released five years ago last weekend by President Obama making the executive decision to uh, execute a prisoner swap and he was traded for five officials who were held in Guantanamo Bay, themselves prisoners of war for more than 12 years. And that prisoner swap was lopsided, the most lopsided POW exchange in modern American history, and triggered an intense political firestorm. Bergdahl was made out to be the greatest of villains and called a traitor with no evidence by Donald Trump and others. And um, basically turned into a, a, a pariah for reasons, for things, some of which he had little to do with. And I think our book shows just how much the systems involved in the war exploited him and turned someone who for five years had been held up as a poster boy POW into a pariah and a traitor.
0: I, I would definitely agree with that. If you don't mind, we could kind of maybe back up just a touch into again, we we sort of said that he, you know, he wasn't really like a stable candidate who belonged um in the military could we maybe just kind of give a little bit of of that background and and it might explain to someone who's not familiar with this story. I mean, we can't really totally explain why, or if it is truly a a reliable account, but I guess just a little bit of background about Bergdahl that would, that that, that could give some sense to the story. And,
1: and, and I can assure you it's reliable because we, in this book, American cipher have sourced it better than anyone else working on this story. We've spoken to people, I mean, like I said, I lived in his hometown for almost ten years, so I knew my. I have mutual friends with Bo, so I I know people who know him quite well, and um, he was a a kid who grew up in this you know somewhat eccentric town. As an eccentric kid, he grew up eight miles outside the town of Haley, Idaho, in a backcountry canyon. I think for listeners who are on the East Coast and Florida and the South, maybe even California. It's hard to really understand uh, for those of us from the more densely populated parts of the country, what it looks like there, uh, what it's like to grow up there. He truly grew up in the back country. He grew up on a small house that was a converted horse barn that his parents moved into, that they wanted to make that they wanted to turn it into a working horse ranch. And there was uh, aside from one neighbor about a mile away, there was very few people there. I mean, the entire canyon, eight miles long, maybe had 200 people in at tops. Um, we're talking a very sparsely, sparsely populated area uh, where he grew up uh, hunting and fishing and hiking and spending more time alone and more time seeing more animals on an average day, seeing more elk and deer and and, and there's wolves out there than he ever saw a shopping mall or, you know, uh, traffic or things like most of us in America are, you know, are are, are used to in our in our everyday life. Um, but from an early age, he knows he wants to be in the military. He starts having these complexes about being a hero and a protector and saving people. Um, I, I I won't go into the full detail because because I think the book does this really well. Um, people can learn a lot about what it's like to grow up in Idaho. People can learn about what. Uh, how that town is is a specifically unique place on the map. Um, but he is, another thing that I think that I didn't get a chance to go into much detail in the book, but I'd, I'd like to, to talk about here is that he also grew up in a community of real economic inequality. He grew up 18 miles south of Sun Valley, Idaho, which is has been um, a place where some of the wealthiest people in the country and the world go on vacation and have been going since the mid-1930s when the resort was founded. So he's surrounded by kids who very often can take the summers off and go traveling. They can go traveling around Europe. They can go wherever they want. They have incredible amounts of privilege, which allows them to do things that he couldn't do and that he wanted to do. And so when he starts looking for things to do, the Coast Guard, I think, for that reason, made sense, because he could go see the world. Um, But that didn't work out even before he tried the coast guard, he tried to join the French foreign legion. He flew to Paris to do this, but was completely in over his head. And this is an insight into how his thinking is, is uh, unique verging on, uh, depending on, uh, on whether or not you listen to the psychiatrist, uh, you know, fragmented and disordered and abnormal. He didn't, he didn't think about the fact that he'd have to speak French it shocked him that he'd had that people uh. in, in France spoke French. You know, that was a, a big surprise. Uh. He, he spent one summer and went fishing in Alaska and he was very unhappy there because he had to kill fish all day and he hadn't thought about that. So he's a kid with, with really big ambitions, incredible um, imagination that he lived in very often in his own mind and he wanted adventure and he wanted to, to see the world but he didn't have the means to do it like some of these other kids he grew up around. Um, Shortly before he eventually joined the army, two other things that he was looking into within just a couple of months, not all of this in the book either. He auditioned for Cirque du Soleil because he was so fit and he had been a ballet dancer. I left that part out, but he had been a ballet dancer in Idaho and he really took a lot of uh, pride and attention in his ballet dancing. He was one of the lifters, you know, who'd lift up the, um, huh. the young women and, and, cause he was strong and he was really able to do this easily and he was a total gentleman, so these young women loved dancing with him. But he didn't want to go to Cirque du Soleil, he told one of his friends, because they didn't treat their employees very well. Well, I, I don't know why he thought the army would treat them better, but. <laughs> <laughs> but there you go. There's an unusual way of thinking. The one other thing he thought about doing, his parents tried to get him in with their church pastor had gone to Uganda and East Africa uh, to work with local villagers there as missionaries. And they tried to um, find a spot for Bo to go to East Africa as a missionary, but there was no room there. So, you know, you see a, a, a trend line and an escalating uh, desire on his part to see the world, to do something amazing, to have an adventure. Uh, he lived in his, in his imagination in a big way, and when he signed up for the war, he did it in a very romantic, in a very we, 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 with a lot of very romantic ideas that really were quite outdated and not not relevant to, to the the dirty realities of how we fight these wars.
0: You mentioned something earlier, and it was definitely something that piqued my interest in, in, in buying the book. Um, because, and admittedly, when while this was all going on, again, you'd hear the Fox News narrative, you'd, you'd see the sort of comments on social media, you know, this narrative that that the guy that Bergdahl was a traitor, and even some, you know, high-level military people were making this comment. Uh, and personally, I had a certain level of suspicion about all of it. And it kind of felt like your book, again from the outside looking in, um, it it definitely confirmed my 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 skepticism. I was just kind of hoping that you could give some sort of commentary as far as just that that whole narrative of him being a traitor.
1: I think, and I'm glad you went right to this point because it's such an important one. And the the thing that everyone really needs to understand about about the 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 rumor of him being a traitor and where it started is that it, it, it first began in 2010 in an official way. You know, sure there's gossip and rumors among among the guys he's with, why do you do that, you know? But, mm-hmm. but in terms of, of, of it being published somewhere, of it being in the media, I'm saying, Bo all's a traitor. It was a plant from Taliban propaganda. And Taliban propaganda is not some willy-nilly thing. They are very organized about what they do. And in the summer of 2010, they, uh, the Taliban, one Taliban, let's call him a, com- a mid-level commander, set up in a meeting with a, a a British journalist from the the Sunday Times, which is an excellent newspaper out of London. And it took weeks for this journalist, I talked to him all about it, to set up this meeting. And when he finally got there, he knew that he was going to get the real story on Bergdahl no one knew anything. And the story that he was told by this Taliban commander was that Bergdahl had converted to Islam, changed his name to Abdul, and was teaching seminars and bomb making to Taliban soldiers. And, and this got published, because there was no other source of information at the time. And people forget this, because it happened in August of 2010, that's just a little over a year after Bergdahl was taken prisoner. But this planted a seed that never really went away. And people in the U.S. military, but specifically, let's talk about Mike Flynn, believed it. And I think they believed it because they wanted to believe it. I think they believed it because it 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 worked for what they it it satisfied their needs. It made what they had to do easier to stomach if they could think, well, this guy's just a traitor anyway. So some people we've talked to in the U.S. government military have just said to me how just mind-blowing it was for them to hear former military officers, like you mentioned on Fox News, say, this guy's a traitor. They're just literally doing the Taliban, the propaganda work for them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was stunning. Kind of while we're on this subject of media, I, I think that you were alluding to this in the book, and maybe you don't want to comment, but the way I interpret it, was I think that you were sort of making the point that the Bo Bergdahl's father did help with with getting him released, but at the same time, I felt like his methods were this total PR nightmare.
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, I think I think the methods became a PR nightmare right at the moment when it was already going to be uh, uh it was going to be um, a small nightmare no matter what. Uh, Republican uh, Republican Congressional staffers told um, um, uh, Michael Hastings, who did the the story in 2012 for Rolling Stone with my co-author Matt Farwell, told them that early that, or I'm sorry, they told Mark Grossman at the State Department, who then told um, the reporters, but told them that, that if Obama went through with this trade, that they would make it his Willie Horton moment in the war on terror we referring to the Willie Horton right.
0: ad. Uh, yeah.
1: So that was in 2012. So by the time two years later he's released, there was already a plan to turn this into a communication strategy and a smear against Obama. Uh, it was already fully baked into the cake. Then you get Bob Bergdahl out there with a full beard speaking Pashto in the Rose Garden, and that is just, you know, right. <laughs> that is right. just putting, I mean, horse steroids into it. It's just, it takes... <laughs> It just takes off out of the gate and it, it couldn't have been more if you're a Republican operative who wants to turn this into a press release, well, you've just been given the greatest gift of all time. And right. I don't think I don't think Bob really gave a damn about that. Um, I think right. you know, he, he he wanted to make his little protest and and, and uh, the other thing that readers will learn in the book is that none of that was planned. The president's aides didn't tell the Bergdahls that they were going to speak. It was all improvised, right. uh, which is really incredible. But <clears throat> but but it's, it's and, and I really encourage people to read it because what they'll find out is that before that moment, before Bob Bergdahl gets in the Rose Garden and starts speaking in Arabic and Pashto, the U.S. military was encouraging him to do what he did. He was out there on Twitter making... Connections with with Taliban supporters, with ISIS supporters, and and all of his communications were being closely monitored by U.S. intelligence and U.S. military. So why is that a good thing? Because it helps identify and locate terror networks. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there there's a there, there's a a famous um, method to this called uh, illuminate the network, which is something Stanley McChrystal and Mike Flynn did. In, in in Iraq earlier uh, in that war, well, Bob Bergdahl was doing his own little version of that. He was getting he was getting information about uh, jihadis and about terror networks and the U.S. and his U.S. military handlers went. You keep doing what you're doing. Um, anyway, way anyway you slice it, Bob thought he was going to encourage the Taliban to get to trade his son. But American intelligence were going well, even if you don't do that we're getting some valuable information based on your activity, so go for it. And right. the fact that he was then thrown under the bus in such a obscene, over-the-top way just goes to show also how little Congress and the political machines even knew about what was going on for two years prior to that.
0: You touched upon something, this is something. It's, I, I found it interesting, because um, you, you mentioned it earlier, the fact that he was in Pakistan, and not Afghanistan, and you're talking about all of this intelligence. I mean, it's something that I've talked about a lot with my own work. But the fact that the captors were these former allies of our intelligence um apparatus, and happened to be these, you know, these major, you know, opium warlords. But I was just kind of hoping you, if you don't mind, just giving a little background on who actually were his captors.
1: Yeah, and yeah, and you nailed it. Um... The Hakani network. So Jalaluddin, I um, don't know how to pronounce that perfectly. Neither do I. Jalaluddin, Jalaluddin, Jalaluddin Hakani was uh, an Afghan warlord who was the CIA, one of the CIA's most favorite warlords in the covert war against the Soviets in the 1980s. Therefore, he received training. He received money. He received weapons. He received the fulsome support of the United States cia and uh in the largest covert military operation that our country has ever undertaken and we don't really think about it because it's it was covert and it was happening across the world in a place we didn't know but remember the chevy chase dan ackroyd movie spies like us (laughs) you know that turned it into into a comedy but this was a major major Operation for for nearly a decade, started by the Carter administration and then really ramped up by Reagan. Um, so Hakani was on the border region, and he was fighting the Soviets on our behalf. And fast forward ten years to uh, after the end of the Soviet war and into 9/11, and Haqqani has to choose a side. Which way is he going to go? Well, he'd already been working with the Taliban, so he sticks with the Taliban. And he becomes the Taliban's most effective and ferocious fighter. And when, when you see news reports about bombings in Kabul and just these awful, awful, just unbelievable acts of mindless violence where, you know, they pack an ambulance full of explosives and, and put it in the middle of a crowded part of the city and it kills dozens of, uh, or hundreds of people. Nine times out of 10, that's the Hakam and they also use kidnapping to make money and to get leverage. And they are, um, that's who took Bo Bergdahl prisoner, um, and that's who held him in Pakistan.
0: And yeah, just to kind of, again, back things up, I, I tend to, my mind works out of order. <laughs> but um, No, me too. Of, <laughs> but um, I, I guess what sort of intrigued me about my, this story is the way, at the time it was going, I really felt that Bergdahl really was this sort of political prop, and and I was hoping you could kind of comment because Trump has basically used the military as a prop, and Trump definitely used Bergdahl uh, to sort of cement this image as you know this tough you know supporter of the military.
1: Oh, I wouldn't even know where to start on that. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I I don't disagree with you. I I think. I'm very surprised that, I I would be surprised if Trump had as much support in the active duty military as we might think he did. I'd love to see a poll. I mean, I think he has a lot of support in retired military. I think he has a lot of support from people, um, you know, who maybe haven't had to fight the wars. But if you did a poll among people who actually had to fight the wars and see combat, I I I'd I'd be really curious because I think people would see through it. Um, it's so, it's so, it's so transparent that he uses the military as a prop, you know, and he latched onto the Bergdahl story early because it was an easy one for him. You know, here, here's a guy who gets, he already doesn't like prisoners of war, as we know from his
0: feud with, with,
1: with McCain. And here you have a prisoner of war in a Muslim country, uh, freed by a, you know, quote, unquote, Muslim president, according to Trump. And it's just too easy for him not to pick it up and do with it what he does to everything, which is turn it into a very simple and false morality tale. Um, it was just, it was too simple from the beginning. And I think, but, but look, Trump's trying to win an election. Trump was trying to, to get a campaign off the ground. I don't even blame, of course what Trump did was unethical, but, you know, we don't, we don't get mad at a crocodile for, you know, eating animals. That's what a crocodile does. So I don't even blame Trump as much as I blame the, those in the news media who yeah. hold, hold themselves up as the supposed protectors and guardians of the truth. And then, and then run away with this ridiculous story uh, full of myths and rumors and innuendo and talk about it like it's true, you know? And there were people, even Jake Tapper at CNN got had by his sources. And I think a big part of this story that bothers me is just how easily the media got played and how the media wasn't skeptical enough of what it was hearing because the media wanted a good story too.
0: Well, I think what, what your book was it was just trying to give it giving him his due, I guess you could say. I don't think that you were necessarily apologetic for him because I, I think it did come across. I mean, I, I think that it's fair to say that, that there's justifiable anger towards Bergdahl. I, I think that's a fair thing, but it it it, it, it went way too far again to, to to say that he was a traitor. Um the one thing though um, I was hoping you could address is There are a lot of active duty military who, who do have that sense of anger, but usually the main thing that they point to is this assertion that a lot of people died in trying to save him. I mean, you kind of alluded to it earlier, but I was kind of hoping that you could expand upon that, because I think that's the one main real area of contention with this story.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and I hope people pick up the book because they will get the full picture to understand it, but I'll do my best to... To to address yeah. it quickly, right. it 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 can be two things can be true at once. People who soldiers who were fighting the war believe because they were told that they were going to look for Bergdahl. They believe that that's true. It can it at the same time is true that that was not the actual purpose of the missions they were sent on, and and. of the missions sent out to look for Bo Bergdahl were sent out for different reasons that officers and commanders said, well, we're going to go look for Bo Bergdahl, so we're going to go do this and we're going to do that. And I had officers explain to me that they used that as an excuse to justify doing other things. I had officers explain to me that it was widespread for months across all of eastern Afghanistan that if you would add the mission order. A mission order may have 10 different things you need to go do. You need to go uh, try to find this Taliban target. You need to go see what's going on in this village. Need, there's all sorts of things that needed to be done. If you added to that list, you're gonna look for Bo Bergdahl. Then all of a sudden, that mission becomes personnel recovery mission. It can get more assets. It can, it can uh, get more aggressive. It can you, you go out on different rules of engagement. So it became kind of this catch-22 for these guys on the ground because they're going, okay, we're going to look for Bo Bergdahl, but he's not here. And I had a guy in his platoon tell me, we did our best to look for him even when we knew he wasn't there. Mm. Well, wrap your head around that. You know. Right. <laughs> so, of, of course, they're angry because who else are they going to be angry at? They should be angry at the army that lied to them. They should be angry at the system that sent them out in dangerous places under false pretenses. But Bo Bergdahl was used, and this is something I think that fits into the theme of your podcast and what you frequently talk about, Bo Bergdahl became part of the racket. Bo Bergdahl became exploited by the systems that he was within so they could accomplish their own goals and needs and and i think in the book you know i just did my best to to summarize yeah. it but in the book we really take you through what that was like on the ground and yeah these guys have a right to be pissed at him i do pissed at him too and i don't defend what he did what he did was completely indefensible and crazy and stupid but i also think that that people have a right to know what really happened and families of men who died should be told the truth by the army that what they were doing when they died because it wasn't going to rescue Bo Burtall.
0: While I was reading it, it kind of uh, reminded me of how, because again, 9-11 to this war, but 9-11 was uh, sort of the pretext for so many of these different laws, like the Patriot Act, that you couldn't pass them before 9-11. After 9-11, well, sure, you can put that through. And that, while I was reading it, that, that parallel just kind of kept popping up in my mind um, as I was hmm. reading your work um yeah 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 i mean is uh, is there anything else that you'd just kind of like to say for the audience i guess any way to follow you uh, go check your grab your book
1: yeah well the book's available on amazon um and barnes noble and your local independent book sailors which is always a good way to go um it's i you can find you can follow me on twitter M I R K E L. That's Merkel. That is an old nickname. That when I signed up for Twitter, I never in a million years thought would become a professional uh, <laughs> handle. <laughs> um, but then, then you can call me by my nickname. And um, look, I think I think this is I. I really have heard from so many different people. You know, I I did a book talk in Northern New Jersey where I grew up. I hadn't been back to Northern New Jersey in like 20 years. So it was like really going back in time for me, especially since (laughs) I went to the movies at the books, uh, next to where the bookstore was a few months earlier. And I went, my God, they haven't changed. They haven't changed the carpeting in here since I was in high school. (laughs) But I went to talk in Northern New Jersey to a crowd of people that were, there were some girls there I grew up with. Uh, They were like friends of my parents. And there were a lot of people who didn't normally read military books. And they, so many of them picked up the book and they said they loved it because it's really so much more than a military book. It's a story about a family. It's a story about a platoon. It's a story about a town. There's a lot of characters in here who we got to know so well, you know, and people talk about the serial podcast and sure, they had great sources but I think they went uh, more wide and we went more deep. And we also have sources that they didn't talk to, like the interpreters in the platoon, who were Afghans, who um, you know, now live in Australia and America. So I just think if you really wanna get, if you wanna understand something about America's longest war on an emotional level, and in a way that you can sit around and talk about with your friends, and not so much in this like newsy, wonky statistics, but really like how this affects people. Because we went and talked to the people who fought with Bergdahl, who hated him, and then forgave him. You know, the soldiers who don't go on TV are the ones who forgave him, because they're Christians, and that's their, they, they see that as their Christian duty. Um, I could go on and on, but writing this book, researching this book, it was a privilege of a lifetime. Um, I'll be grateful for forever to the people who were so patient and who, in many cases, put their own careers on the line, their government military careers on the line, to talk to us. We talked to people who were uh, undercover. We talked to people who were uh, in the Obama cabinet. So I just think um, it's it's the kind of book about a war that you could take to a beach, and I hope people hmm. give it a ch- I hope people give it a chance, and they go into it with an open mind, realize that we're not defending people, but that we're telling everyone's story. And, and these wars are so long that, that it's well past time that everyone has a chance to tell their story. And I'm just lucky that I had a chance to be a part of that a little bit
0: yeah I, I would definitely agree with your assessment because um, again it it's it's not a hundred percent in the wheelhouse of the type of content that I like to cover, mm-hmm. but it, again I just was fascinated by by the book and i'm I'm appreciative that you were willing to come on the show and, and take the time to talk about it um and give you know give you know give the audience just a a pretty different uh perspective on some things um so I definitely highly recommend um everybody check that out I ask hey everybody's listening. You know, please, you know, support the podcast. However, you know, share this with your friends. Give it a five-star rating. Lastly, I always like to ask if you want to support the podcast, go out there, grab a copy of my three-book series called Rackets, which is on the legalization of drugs and gambling and the decriminalization of prostitution. So until next time, thank you much. It's a big club, and
1: you ain't in it. I am concerned that... The size of some of these institutions becomes so large that it does become difficult for us to um, to prosecute. You have a license. The price is two hundred and fifty thousand dollars plus a monthly payment of five percent of the gross of all four hotels in the story. Corleone.